I don't always listen to the Foo Fighters and uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Sea, but when I do, it's because it's time for The Long Road to Ruin. Hello, this is The Long Road to Ruin. I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radledge. And with me tonight, as always, to discuss movie franchises that start great, become even greater, and then fall completely off a cliff, my main man... Here he is, folks. The ring, the circus ringleader of music's three R's, Mr. Sean Comer. Sir, how you doing? Hello, everybody. I am absolutely wonderful and not feeling like pounded fecal matter this week. <laughs> it's good. It's a good way to start the show. <laughs> yes. 
All right. Tonight, folks, we are going to be, uh, as you could probably tell from the mood music, we are going to be taking on the Scream franchise. Tonight, parts one and uh, two of the franchise, Scream, Scream 2. And then in two weeks, we will be concluding with Scream 3 and Scream 4. And, of course, we couldn't do a podcast on the horror genre without everybody's favorite villain, 401 Sam the Eagle, Mr. Robert Winfrey. How you doing? Dad's a red herring. Billy's the killer. That's <laughs> really all that needs to be said here. All right. Thank you for joining us on the long road to ruin tonight. <laughs> thank you, you goddamn little killjoy. Oh, no. How dare I spoil a movie that's almost 20 years old? There might be somebody it. listening right now who's never, <laughs> never seen it, and you just ruined it for them. They don't understand No, I that. was quoting the movie. I don't necessarily have to ruin anything. Randall says the same thing in the movie theater. I didn't spoil anything. I quoted the movie. Hey, not for nothing, not that I want to get ahead of myself here, but if you're not watching this movie and realizing that Billy, you know, with them crazy Johnny Depp psychopath eyes is the murderer, then I don't know what movie you thought you were watching in the first place. The only real the on, the only real uh, twist in that is that there's two of them, not just one psycho crazy person. Yeah, pretty much. But I'm looking <laughs> forward to this one. So thanks for having me back. <laughs> indeed, oh, indeed. Well, well yeah, All right. he's, he's right. He's right, we really can't talk about a horror franchise because, I mean, half the ones out there, Mark refuses to watch. So. <laughs> well, hey, I... horror's not for everyone. We have to be mindful of those with delicate sensibilities. And besides, this October, you and I are going to tear apart the Hellraiser franchise, so we all have oh, that to look forward to. Are. Oh, yes, we are. <laughs> All right, folks, we actually have an audience in the chat room tonight. First ever Long, ro- long Road to Ruin chat room. So feel free to uh, discuss the podcast as it's unraveling, and I do mean unraveling, uh, live. Uh, occasionally I'll check in, see how you guys are doing, and if, one, and if someone's making um, some salient points that I feel would play a part in the podcast, I will mention it to my co-host and guest. But let's get right into this. Now, before we even get into the first Scream movie, which was uh, monumental when it came out in terms of what it represents to the horror franchise, let's talk a little bit about the history of slasher films. Sean, let's start with you, and then we'll go over to Robert. Talk to me a little bit about how we got to uh, 1996, because by, ni- by, by the time Scream comes out, it actually has to revitalize what had been marked as uh, marked for dead, a dead genre. The horror genre in American films was um, at death's door, as it were. I swear to God, I'm not trying to be punny. But Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson came along and revitalized the franchise with a, with a slasher classic. So how did we get here? Well, I mean, you know, I don't want to go back and give an entire complete history of the slasher genre because... Really, the biggest franchises of it that you need to know are Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and Friday the 13th. Of course, I've got those completely out of chronological order, I realize. I know that Halloween was really the one that came first and, for all intents and purposes, really invented the slasher genre as we know it. Um, The reason those three are the most important, though, are because... I think Black Christmas was technically the first, if you want to get into the... At, you know where it starts, Black Christmas, and one that came out around the same time, same basic theme about deranged guy comes home for Christmas, kind of started it, but it wasn't 
I mean, Halloween was actually the first financially successful one, I believe. It was it was the first financially successful one, and it was the first one that really begat a long running franchise. Black Christmas is outstanding. It's far and away one of the best, if not depending on who you ask, the best of the genre. Now, does it take place in a Walmart? I'm going to ignore that. (laughs) I got nothing there? Not even crickets? No, you're the one controlling the soundboard. If you want to cricket yourself, go for it. I'm not going to give it to you. (laughs) It's like I'm working with Jeff Harris here. Go on. Yes, Mark, by all means, do go cricket yourself. Um... But, no, um, Black Christmas is outstanding. Uh, it, it's a superb movie, don't get me wrong. However, uh, the one that's regarded as arguably the most influential, both in terms of probably birthing a franchise being right up there with Friday the 13th, and in being able to do these kinds of movies on the cheap and being able to demonstrate what kind of major financial success they can be, is John Carpenter's Halloween, which I will add is arguably one of my favorite movies of all time when you're talking about the original. But the reason I bring up those three in particular is because by this point in the 90s, these movies had all, the genre had fallen, especially these three franchises, so far by the wayside that they were shadows of their former selves. They were no longer spine-tingling, tense thrillers as they once were. Um, they really... The studios and the people who made them had grown incredibly complacent. They'd become formulaic. Um, Paul Farr is saying that he can't hear us. <laughs> uh, and really, they no longer held the same allure as they once did in terms of being able to tell, being able to tell quality stories. Um and, yes, that's when you have enter Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson. Uh, Wes, of course, was the mastermind behind uh, horror class horror classics such as The Hills Have Eyes, um, Last House on the Left, and most notoriously, um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, of course. Well, the first one. Um, and he really stepped up with Kevin Williamson, who was a superb screenwriter, to do something that nobody else at that point had really done. And that was write something that was a self-aware, not-so-much parody, but just a complete genre reconstruction of what had become an an infamous genre. And... You know, we're, there's there's only so much I can kind of go into right now, but at the time, since this had never been done this way quite before, it had broken quite so many of the rules. Uh, this really was it, it was it was a rebirth. It was kind of a rebirth by looking at the whole thing and say, and just kind of being honest about the realities of it. And the fact is. You know, it really did start a renaissance in the slasher genre, but one in which nobody ever quite did it quite as well as Scream Scream did, even if I Know What You Did Last Summer kind of came close, the first one anyway. But I'm sorry that kind of rambled, trailed off a little bit at the end, but 
I mean, Robert, what do you think? Did I did I miss anything here? Well, not really. There's a couple of, I mean, the slasher genre was not faring too well in the 90s. Horror itself was kind of dead in the 90s. I mean, it, you, you mentioned the big three as far as franchises go. Uh, Halloween, Friday the 13th, and Nightmare on Elm Street. If you look in the 90s, we have some of the true dogs of those series, and they've got some bad ones, but you've got... See if I can remember this off the top of my head. I believe you have Jason Goes to Hell in the nineties. Oh, you have Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, which I believe is the fifth one, which is so bad it is now in the realm of public domain. By the way, consider that. <laughs> is it, is and it really you, public domain? What? Uh, I believe Myers? so because I've got. Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers on a few different of those horror anthology DVDs that you pick up for like five bucks at Walmart. The studio has, it can go wherever now, I believe. I mean, that's how bad it is. Nobody bothers with the rights to that one. Um, and uh, Fusionator, our good friend from Manic Expression, just pointed out, uh, definitely Nightmare on Elm Street for... Uh, yeah, that was not terribly good. You also had the big one that I think kind of came out of that. Uh, Freddy's Dead came out in the early 90s. Oh, God. As did Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which would play a lot better today with some of the themes he explored, but at the time was not a huge success. I know you're a big fan of it. I know you're a fan of it. I'm just saying... You've also got the Child's Play uh, movies and Witchcraft was going through its million iterations. I was going to say, I think then you also have Candyman that was out there. Um, uh, Candyman's actually not that bad. But again, when you get into two and three, I mean, like I said, you had Child's Play 2 through Seed of Chucky. So consider the horror that is... I mean, the best <laughs> horror movies that came out in the 90s, prior to Scream in 96, bent genres into, well, they kind of fit in other roles, because you have two of my all-time favorite movies came out early in the 90s, uh, Tremors and Army of Darkness. Oh, hell yes. But if you're talking, you know, commercially successful, high visibility, it's not there. It's just not there anywhere until the Scream franchise hits. And as a horror fan, thank God, because there are some... If you look up the list of horror movies that came out in the 90s, there's nothing but dogs. I mean, you get a couple of decent ones that are pseudo-horror movies. I mean, you can debate the classification of Misery and Silence of the Lambs. No, not horror. Not horror. Okay, you stand on not horror. My brother stands on not horror. I am willing to bend a little bit there. But by and large, when you're looking at horror, there's not a lot that's good. There's very little that is... Especially so the genre, good. So the genre was in hang on, the genre was in desperate need of revitalization and when Wes Craven decides that he's not only going to create recreate the slasher genre by going back to some classic elements, he's going to do something that uh, no other movie up, up to this point had done. And I think this is the element that makes Scream wildly successful. He makes it a self aware horror film. Self-referential. We won't. Sean and I talked prior to the podcast. We won't go as far as to say it's a parody, but there are satirical elements to Scream that make somebody who, I, I, you know, we talk about what makes something successful. If you're aiming for a niche audience, you're never going to find the kind of 
um, multi-million dollar mainstream success that a studio wants. What makes Scream, I think, the kind of success that it became was the fact that you, you know, that that it spoke to a wider audience. It spoke to an audience that not only appreciated horror films but also laughed at it, and it focused on those horror elements and kept the gore to a minimum. I mean, basically, it's it's real. It, you know, instead of having monsters and zombies and God only knows when and 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 dolls produced by Satan. Uh, chasing you around around the house, what you have are real live uh, people who can be hurt, and it's actually fun to watch them trip over the furniture. Uh, you know, chasing Nev Campbell around the house and such. And and to I, me, to this but, day, hang on, I get a kick on. out of watching Ghostface get kicked in the balls. Yeah, because it's funny so, as hell. I was gonna say, and then I'm gonna let Sean go for a second. This is one of the things that brings someone like me to horror, and that's the point that I was getting at. Scream is successful because it brings guys like you to it who are who appreciate the horror franchise and people like me who um don't necessarily want to see people being chainsawed to death but are interested in a but are interested in a fun yet violent movie. Go ahead, Sean. Well, I mean, one one little side point that I kind of want to make about 90s horror is that one of the problems with it is a lot of the movies you mentioned really probably should have just kind of been, in hindsight, just left alone as standalone movies because they kind of they kind of nailed it with the first movie, and then they made the mistake of going and trying to make sequels out of them. You mentioned Candyman. I'm sorry, the first Candyman kicks just every flavor of ass. Now I agree. Uh, I love the first Candyman. The problem with that is every sequel is just. In exponentially worse. The first one is very good. You want to talk exactly. about a movie that starts out okay and then every sequel is exponentially worse? Have you ever seen Darkman? Yes, I love the first Darkman. The first one's I, awesome. I do. I really enjoy that one. And then, yeah, it's just all downhill. Dude, very die, Darkman, die. It used to be the measuring stick for crap. It, it is the. It is to me the uh, the rat, R A T T, the rat of movies. Hey, hey, hey. You're going to start dissing rat, we're going to have some issues here, buddy. <laughs> you can find me every other Tuesday with Robert Cooper discussing music and using the measuring stick of crap that is rat. <laughs> well, but the, the point being is that, you know, that's that's one example. I mean, another example is we're going to talk about this October is Hellraiser. All things considered, Hellraiser should have stopped at one, maybe two movies. Two was really pretty unnecessary. Um, hey, I, uh, I'll grant you from a story point it's unnecessary, but it's so awesome. I have a hard time saying that. No, well, no, you're you're right. It manages to be <clears throat> um, enjoyable despite it not really being a necessity after the way the first movie ended. But everything after two was just absolutely gratuitous, increasingly stupid, and and, and less and less interesting. Um, to me, the only I have I have to agree with uh, a four one one writer Joseph Lee because I do enjoy Inferno when we get into the Hellraisers and we'll get more into that in we'll get more into that later but I do enjoy that one. Well, yeah, but by you know, and large, yeah. you know, uh, Inferno was the Halloween three season of the <laughs> Witch series in that it was a good movie that just happened to involve Cenobites and yeah, actually. Sure. It, it, I think I would probably regard it a lot more highly 
if they had never tried to just shoehorn that into the Hellraiser lineage. Um, All right, let's um, let hang on, hang on, guys. Let's get back to talking about Scream here before we go too too far off track, okay? Um, so I want to get into, you know, as we said, we we've, we've now set up that uh, you know the, the the genre was having some problems. Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson came along and really wrote this what I thought was actually a brilliant idea, where it's self-referential in that it looks at all of the. Um, all the tropes in, in, in cliches in horror films and, and openly talks about them. I think the other thing that people have noted about the Scream franchise is that it was one of um, the first movies that used known actors, mostly television stars, which, I, which uh, I'm going to go to you first, Robert, on that. First time you see Scream in 1996, and it's got uh, Courtney Cox from Friends. You've got uh, former WCW heavyweight champion, <laughs> no, no, we are not going going into that. No, no, divert from that right now. He's the guy from Eight Legged Freaks. <laughs> Star it's of Ready Mr. to Courtney Cox is kind of how that plays out. So Star of Ready to Rumble and De- and Diamond Dallas Page's uh, best friend David Arquette. Talk you had... out. He is the guy from <laughs> the Vampire Slayer and Eight Legged Freaks. We are not diverting into that. We're not diverting to that thing that should not be. <laughs> you had Rose McGowan, who, um, you know, if you if you'd seen her movies, you know, you knew who she was, though, and, and she was a name enough, but she wasn't, you know, the world's biggest name in this thing. Um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Nev Campbell, who who was known to people for Party of Five, but by and large, the biggest star of this was Drew Barrymore, obviously. Um, I think it was one of those movies where, where she, this was, I think, early on in the turnaround for her career when you know when she pulled herself out of the abyss. So you get this heart, you get this slasher movie. I don't know how much you knew about it going in, but you, when you sat down to watch this and you saw it played out, what did uh, what did having known actors bring to the movie for you? Uh, I'm probably the wrong guy to ask that because I did not see it in theaters. I first saw that movie. I was 11 or 12, and I saw it at a friend's house. So I didn't necessarily recognize all of the people who other people did. I was with some friends and their parents, and we were all watching it, and I was probably far too young to understand it, which is one of the reasons I have such a deep affection for the movie now, because it legitimately scared me when I was a kid. Really? Okay. Yeah, um, I hadn't had much exposure to horror at the time. That was kind of my introduction to the modern horror movie. And yeah, that whole opening sequence was uh, actually built tension for me when I mean again, you know, I'm like 12 years old at the time. So I'm not seeing this through the same eyes that I do that I did when I saw it later when I'd seen other slashers. It just became kind of so it became kind of you know one of the first horror movies that I saw that also actually scared me. But as far as the names go, I mean I can't. Looking back on it, that's actually a huge deal because you tended to get people who were either in the horror genre or no names. I mean Jamie Lee Curtis was the scream queen for forever until she finally got away from it, and it took her a while. But it, you know, getting actors who were established, who have their own names, who have some of their own following, to be in a horror movie—that—that's pretty big at the time, especially for you know not a huge budget. So I have to imagine that was a big deal for 
you know, the older people who would go and, you know, older again, you know, at the time I was a kid. So, you know, going and seeing know. recognizable faces instead of all of these no names would have been a big draw for that. Right. I know for me it um it lended an air of legitimacy to the movie. I think that was one of the things that drew me to to watching it was unlike some of the uh, horror movies that you guys were mentioned that had either people that were firmly entrenched in the horror genre or were no names um the, some of those movies and this might seem uh, somewhat disrespectful but they just they don't they, they seem like exploitation movies you know they seem like the old uh something weird uh Roger Corman type of stuff and while I enjoy a nice B movie um when this came out this this seemed like a real real big budget A list movie and it was something that uh, I was fascinated with Sean. When you saw the you know the list of stars that were in this, what was your reaction? Well, I mean, the thing about this is is the fact that um, the, the and I'll start with the biggest you know the biggest name at the time that was in the movie was the fact that no movie up to that point had ever utilized an A list name quite the way they utilized Drew Barrymore. And that was as being a big fake out, number one, since she was given such, you know, prominent placement right there on the poster and right there among among the building. But also the fact that they really used drop oh, my pen, sorry. Uh Drew's role in the movie to really make the statement that this was going to be a daring endeavor. Um you know, killing her off within the within about the first fifteen twenty minutes or so, within the first fifteen minutes of the movie, um, that just tells you right tells you right there that this is going to be unlike anything else the genre has ever churned, has ever turned out, um, and it just it, it right there sets the tone sets the tempo for Wes Craven defying every single expectation that could possibly come along about this kind of movie. Now, as far as everybody else, um, you know, David Arquette wasn't really as big a deal at this point. In fact, this was arguably the movie that inflicted him upon the earth in the first place. And Um, gave us WCW heavyweight champion David Arquette. Stop that. No, it was Ready to Rumble that gave us WCW heavyweight champion David no, Arquette. No, it was Vince Russo that gave us WCW heavyweight champion um, David Russo Arquette. Vince Russo also gave us Vince Russo WCW world heavyweight <laughs> champion. Let's just not go down that road. Uh, <laughs> nobody in the chat room understands what we're talking about. Please continue, Sean. My, Sean. Hatred, of, my hatred of you both could grill T-bones right now. medium rare that's all I ask (laughs) the more you hate the more I'm bringing it up your hate has made you strong Sean Robert you will get yours well done and like it (laughs) (laughs) anyway uh, this was also really a mold breaker for Courtney Cox because this was unlike characters that she played up up to this point. Um, the, the biggest thing she'd been in up, she'd been in not counting a Bruce Springsteen video up to now, had been Friends and Ace Ventura Pet Detective. And she kind of played kind of variations on, Mon- well, obviously she was Monica and Friends, but, I mean, she wasn't really that different in Ace, 
in Ace Ventura. Here, she actually got to play a character with some spark and a big main character, and she wasn't relegated for a few movies yet to really being a helpless, flailing screamer either. Um, no, that's one, and, and let me stop you there. That's one thing about the women uh, in, in these movies, that they are not uh, helpless dunces. Nev Campbell is actually a very, very, uh, as um, Sydney is a very, very strong character and somebody that you cheer for. One of the things that stands out to me as I watch the first two movies is there never gets to a point where I'm rooting for her death which I know is is different than in a lot of other horror movies, especially now where you, you – where, you know, I think we talked about this even with uh, Paranormal Activity, where you want the oh, monsters yeah. – you want the monsters Please to Please kill, kill this person. Yeah, you're just sitting there like uh, – you're, you're, when you're rooting for the monster, I think there's a fundamental flaw in the script. And what's great about Scream and what works is that Nev Campbell never becomes unlikable. She – you root for her. You're – I think you're um, – you know, she has some close calls, and you and you're legitimately fear for her safety, and it takes you through the entire movie. She's also not necessarily surrounded by a lot of people who you're like, ugh, please die. You know, I think we we, we could we could quibble over certain things. Certainly, Matthew Lillard um, was somebody I wanted to punch in the face through most of this movie, and as it turns out, he's the villain, so <laughs> that works. And as it turns out, every other movie he's ever been a part of. Well, you know, guys, the thing is, though, is we're we're actually forgetting one guy in this who really, God, it's almost you kind of you kind of know that he has to that he has to meet the end that he does when he meets it, but um, we really can't understate Jamie Kennedy's contribution to this either. Yeah, let's you know, he played. Go ahead, Robert. I think Jamie Kennedy played. First of all, I don't like Jamie Kennedy. I really don't. Uh, he has had a couple of things that he's done in his career that I've thought were decent. But by and large, I cheered when he died. Because I knew... the. Uh, because I like the character of Randy. It, it's odd because watching Jamie Kennedy die is great. Killing off Randy in the second one, big spoiler alert there. Not so much, but... We all, I, I mean, we all have friends now, if you're in the horror genre. You have friends, and they existed back then, too. Guys who knew all these different horror movies, who knew all the cliches, who knew... I mean, he talks about the rules. We had, there were people who knew the rules before, you know, everyone else knew the rules. They were there and said, yeah, you can't do this, you can't do this. No, you do this, that's a death sentence. And, you know, at, he was... You know, the horror nerd within the horror nerd movie in a lot of ways, and he added a great deal to it. You know, he was he 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 was somewhat of um, and forgive me if I'm kind of using the term pro- improperly. He was almost kind of the uh, kind of the Greek chorus almost. Yeah, I was gonna say he's the bard. Series, yeah, um, and yeah, he, I mean, you can't. He is I mean, Steve Buscemi from he, Desperado. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that he, you know, spoils the movie essentially partway through it in the video store, but no one knows it. <laughs> well, I, he, uh, he does. Well, he said he posit he posits a scenario that happens to be accurate. He, and a, but the thing about it is, he's talking to one of the murderers when he does it. It's one of the only scenes where Matthew Lillard is obnoxious, but it's an obnoxious that actually. 
feels right in that scene. But let, let's just pause for a moment and talk about that. So you have, you, you know, you don't know it yet, but in the character's mind, he knows he's one of the murderers, and he's talking to this... Hang on. What's up? Did we lose somebody? No, 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 we're fine. <laughs> that was uh, was one of my w- windows being buggy. All right. So you have this this scene where, um, where he basically Matthew Lillard's character is really testing Jamie Kennedy to see what he knows and you know, what he's been able to figure out. And you know, it's like, like, are we going to get found out? Is this twerp going to going to uh, spoil the fun? So he listens to his explanation, and there's a moment. And, and, and watching it back again, you, um, I, I saw it maybe the first time you watch it, and you don't know that Matthew Lillard's one of the killers. You might have missed it. But there's a moment where he's where, like, legitimately worried. It's one of the few times I'm going to give Matthew Lillard the credit that he deserves where he actually acted well. Because there's a moment there where he's a little worried that Jamie Kennedy's onto something, you know, that, you know, on, you know, onto them, essentially. So he listens to this explanation, and as soon as... Uh, Kennedy says, you know, the, you know, if you if you want to know who the killer is, it's Billy. And there's that moment of shit. And then he goes, oh, OK, like completely trying to blow him off and, you know, and misdirect him. And, uh, and you know, he sticks to his guns. It's a, it's a great little scene where both guys are probably doing the best acting of the entire film. Well, you know, uh, allow me to kind of repeat something that I just mentioned in the chat to the Fusionator when he brought this up. And that's the fact that. Matthew Lillard, and there's a, there are a lot of actors that I could put into this category, is he is a one-trick pony. What you see in, what, what, what you see in Scream, that is his one acting mode, and that is spastic, mildly retarded. Um, Played a great Shaggy. <laughs> Senator, I refer to my previous statement. Um, <laughs> The fact is, though, is in this case, and in Scooby-Doo, <laughs> it worked. It, it right. actually, it, it it actually fit. And oddly enough, um, in a strange in a strange little couldn't make this shit up if I tried kind of coincidence. One of the other most infamous examples of this is right there in the movie with him, and that's Rose McGowan. And yet, you've got Rose actually really running against the type that she typically plays, and that's sassy bitch. And Rose McGowan yeah, is actually one of... This is one of the few rules where I don't want to punch her in the face either. It, it, yes. Well, yes, exactly. How could you so want to punch a one-legged chick in the face? Well, that's a, that's a good point, though, is, you know, in movies <laughs> like... In movies where the characters are written like they are in Jawbreaker, or like in... Planet Terror. Rose works because sassy bitch. The only the only edge that I will maybe give Rose over Matthew Lillard, and and I was talking with um, Allison about this the other day, and finally kind of conceding this after being five seasons into her Charmed review. Uh, is, is that's another one wherein I'm forced to go. I'll be damned, you actually displayed some range. It's it's rare that you do it, but you actually managed to break the mold a little bit. But on the other hand, Matthew is kind of still stuck in that lower tier with someone like, say, Michelle Rodriguez, who 
just kind of does only one thing well, and the trick is you have to make sure that if you cast them that you're not asking anything more of them than that. Because otherwise, it's not only going to be a spectacular failure, it's going to work against everything else that's going on in the movie. But in this to case... Their, to, hang on. To their credit, though, everything they do in this movie works. I mean, I, I mean, believe me, I'm not disagreeing about the lack of range in either actor or anything else like that. But I don't want to. I don't want to make it seem like they they put on poor performances or they were wooden or one dimensional or anything else like that. Because here's the thing, and I'll, and I'll stick with specifically Rose McGowan in this. Not only does Rose McGowan um, play against her type in this movie, but you actually legitimately believe that she's a good friend of Sydney's of Nev Campbell's. You know, you yes. buy that there's a relationship there. You you buy that she cares for this person and vice versa. And when her li- and when Nev Campbell's life starts to fall apart because there's someone trying to murder her and her father has disappeared and all this other stuff, you actually believe that Rose McGowan gives a shit. I, and I'm yeah. going to give her the credit that she deserves for that. This no, isn't well, coming. No, no. This isn't coming across like in some of these other movies where you don't understand how these two ever became friends in the first place. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. And when it comes to Rose, I might also add, God bless when they shot the garage scene, whoever hit her underwear that day. Uh, <laughs> God, you know what? Wasn't wearing any. You, you know what? If there were ever just a few scant seconds of a movie that justify something being re-released in 3D. <laughs> Rose McGowan's ass in 3D. <laughs> ass? What hell are you talking about? Um, Rose. I'm talking. I'm, I'm talking about the tight top. The tight top that made it look like she should have been given maybe about a foot clearance in the front. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. Well, the, the miracles of push-up bras and all of that. Um, let's we, we now we've completely neglected the star of this thing. Uh, Nev Campbell, Robert, I'm gonna go over to you for a second. Uh, did you like Nev Campbell's portrayal of Sydney? Did you feel you know? I mean, I, I again, I thought she was a very strong character. I think she carries the movie well on her shoulders. Um, I believe you know, I root for her. I think that the way that she's written is very strong in the sense that she reacts very naturally to the idea that there's somebody running, that there's another person running around the house in a scary mask chasing her with a knife. And she doesn't at all, I mean, he, and this is where I'm going with this and what I want your reaction to. Too many times we see the person who's supposed to be the hero of this thing uh, in a situation where they completely wilt, where they have to be saved by somebody or they end up being killed, you know, or it just, they, they, you look at them and you're just like, I, it, I find it hard to root for you. I can't believe you're that dumb. And I never have one of those moments with Nev Campbell's performance. No, I completely agree. That That is one of the difficulties of horror movies is creating a type of tension where someone's in danger but not behaving stupidly. Because, you know, fear makes you do stupid things. I mean, there's that, that's just flat out. But, I mean, if you do something so stupid, Stupid that it takes the audience out of the moment, or you react so poorly to it. If you lose the audience, you've lost everything. I, I mean, a, a prime example: the remake of The Hills Have Eyes. First of all, I think that movie is utter trash. But there's a sequence in it where a guy hides from one of the inbred hillbillies who has a shotgun. He clubs him over the head with a baseball bat. 
drops the bat, runs out the door, instead of picking up the loaded shotgun that's now on the ground. That's and you know, it's that type of moment in some cases. Or if you're getting into the heroines, a lot of times you're, you're right. They just kind of fold up into a corner and cry as the villain stalks forward with the scary face and the big knife. And even after, I mean, for me, the scene that kind of set her apart is after she realizes that, again, spoiler alert, Billy's the killer, (laughs) and she runs into Matthew Lillard, and she doesn't wilt. She tries to escape a couple of times. She's defiant. She's clearly not going to roll over and die. And, in fact, escapes, fights back, and kills them. Which is awesome, because... Not only does it create, not only does that kind of play against type, where a lot of times the heroine, the survivor girl, just survives, you know, as the name would indicate. She actually is able to effectively fight back to kind of manipulate them at points, and it's a credit to both the writing and the directing and her act, all of that wrapped up. And if she had fell flat at any point, we wouldn't have a screen two, three, or four. It, you know, She had to kind of carry that role. And it's not an easy thing to do, especially in a horror franchise, to carry that off. I also want to I want to give credit to Courtney Cox because she walks a fine line in this movie of playing a character who, for all intents and purposes, should have been remarkably unlikable. She's a tabloid journalist who uses former WCW heavyweight champion David Arquette. She uses... Um, Nev Campbell. She just, you know, she insinuates herself in places where she does not belong, and you would like poor to cameraman. think is <laughs> a poor cameraman, poor Kenny. Um, you know, she she's doing all of these really really terrible things, and you're just like, okay, so here we have somebody who we should be rooting to kill, except that she shows an air of humanity through the movie, especially in the second one. But in the first one, there's that sliver of humanity that makes her sympathetic. And in the end, you're rooting for her too. And when she finally, and she, and when she finally um, she does the heroic, the yeah, show, I was gonna say, do, does the heroic thing at the end. She shows up with the gun and uh, shoots one of them. You're, no, you're cheering. She tries, but she doesn't know how to work the safety. No, no, she she does it at the end. She she does. Uh, she the first time she she misfires or she she's got the safety on and yeah, um, yeah, yeah she comes back. Face. Yeah, I know how to work the safety. No, yeah, you're right. You're right. Right. So the point being, you cheer for her too, and uh, I, I'm curious to get your reaction to that, Sean. How she, um, how it's very interesting how they wrote her character, where you're not quite sure how to take her, and then at the end, she's a sympathetic hero. Well, it's it's definitely more layers than you typically get, and it goes to show that Scream did something well with her as a character in that case, that a lot of remakes of slasher movies nowadays really neglect. Um, I I think first and foremost of that thing that Rob Zombie deigned to call Halloween. Um, And that's the fact that you don't have to make your scream queen, your heroine, a complete white hat. You can give them layers and maybe make them flawed without necessarily breaking down and making them completely, absolutely unlikable. Um, 
the fact or in is, the, or in his second one, making Doctor Loomis more or less unlikable because he should have been in that same position where, yeah, he's still kind of fame hungry a little bit, but he needed. But to me, the second one made him so unlikable that again, you're kind of rooting for Michael Myers, which is so far from what you should be doing. Well, 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 right, exactly. And the fact is, is this is a movie where you really have, in effect, two effective screen screen queens. Um, you know, in Nightmare on Elm Street, you had you had Nancy. In Halloween, obviously, you had Laurie Strode. And in this movie, you have Nev Camp. You have Nev Campbell as being the more traditional strong-willed scream queen that you want to root for, the, the you know, the heroic survivor girl. But at the same time, you've also got um, Gail Weathers, who is this very advantageous, manipulative, hard-nosed woman, and there are things about her that you do absolutely detest along the way. Um, but at the same time, you also respect the fact that she's also rarely the kind that is sitting around waiting to be rescued, uh, who really seems to be always in to be always in need of that. Um, she comes across so well in that way, and for the first two movies, it makes her such an engaging character and so intriguing, even in that you're a little polarized by her, in that. You don't like her, but you find yourself respecting her. That's what kind of goes out the window, unfortunately, in Scream 3, as we'll talk about, in which, you know, she becomes a flailing damsel in, dis- in distress, what what Gail Weathers was never meant to be in the first place. All right, so, lastly, and then um, I want to start to do some transitioning here, uh, is the character of Billy, who is played by Skeet Ulrich, who oozes bad guy. I think this is my only problem with this movie, and I'm glad that they threw the fake out in there early on and just got it over with. Because if you're watching it for the first time, or you've, you know, you don't remember how it goes and you haven't watched it in in years, you might forget that um, there's a huge bait and switch at the beginning of the movie. But the thing of it is, is that he comes across a little like, um, you know, bad guy McEvildoer. He's just, you know, the 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 opening when we first meet Billy, the, you know, he's crawling through a window, and he does this whole ham-handed speech about he wishes their relationship was a little more rated R, and uh, you know, and, and <laughs> instead of PG, and all this other stuff. And I, I understand they're setting him up to be movie obsessed. Hey, eventually my wife will pick that up. Um, for a moment, that was something in my apartment, or if it was no, that was mine. And I'm sitting there, like waiting to like smash the phone. Um, but uh, you know, I understand they're setting him up as as movie obsessed and all of that. But it but it comes across. It's it was the only example I thought of kind of weak writing in the entire movie. Um, I just anything having to do with Billy. It just came across, you know. I just kept waiting for them to reveal that he is the villain, and so the only real payoff that you know of a mystery was that he had a partner in it, and that there was two of them, and that's how they were able to be in two places at once, and all of that, which I thought was fun and interesting. But 
Yeah, that's my only complaint about the original movie was uh, Skeet Ulrich, you want to talk about no range, just oozes bad guy. And I don't mean that in a good way. It's not, you know, he isn't sort of the cool bad guy or the interesting bad guy from, say, uh, for a few dollars more. He's, uh, you know, dick dastardly tying a damsel to a train track. Uh, yeah, I need to. Th- that is, it's sad that he's one of the. Fe- he's like the only guy who came out of this movie. I think a little worse than he went in, <laughs> because his, his well, in his defense, in defense of Skeet Ulrich, his character is not written especially well as far as making him not appear to be the villain. I mean, if you look at the casting of Skeet Ulrich, he was cast in large part because he looks like a young Johnny Depp at that point in time. And Johnny Depp was the good boyfriend in the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie. So there was a bit of that kind of homage going on. But he's not written, and it's there are other things that go into it besides just the writing of the character. I mean, the the music that's on when he's around, which I and have to say I love. Playing the, Dark Vader's theme, by the way. Yeah, I, I love the music in this in Scream. I really do. But you get... But whenever he's around, you know, everything contributes to this ominous feeling that means they either need to take it a completely different direction and make him heroic, or he's just the bad guy and we need some other payoff. And fortunately, we did get some other payoff as far as there being two of them, which is different, especially for a traditional slasher movie, which this more or less is. I mean, it. Thank, I do need to say, thank heavens they added the whodunit, the, and I know I'm going to mispronounce it, but the Italian Gallio type of, you know, there's a mystery in addition to the slasher elements, because if they'd try, I don't think you could do a straight slasher and revitalize the genre like they did. No, that's what I was saying at the top of the podcast. If Without the mystery and without some of the other elements, no one like me watches this movie. Why bother? I, I, can, yeah. I, can, watch, I can watch monsters destroy people um, in Transformers and get a better effect. And I do think we need to give a brief shout-out to the great Henry Winkler, because <laughs> oh, God. Lord knows if I'm a principal in a high school, I'm reacting even worse than he does. <laughs> Look, I, let me say this. I hate teenagers. No offense to teenagers. <laughs> it's nothing personal. It's your age group. You'll Ladies be out of it in a few years. Everyone loves villain. Robert Winfrey, he hates teenagers and children. I do. You know, I hated teenagers before I was a teenager. I hated them when I was a teenager. And now, I still hate them now that I'm not a teenager anymore. It's just an awkward phase of human development. And that's nothing, there's nothing personal in that. I mean nothing personal. Any teenagers out there listening, I'm sure there's some of you, I don't hate you personally. It's just an age thing. Your brain is not fully developed. And you're also at a stage where people start giving you responsibility to test your limits, and it ends badly very frequently. Nothing personal. But if I were the principal of the high school, you're darn right I would have thrown those kids out for wearing those masks. I would have cursed them out even more. I j- it just would have... Henry Winkler well, not great, believable not, not rant here, as, the, as the angry principal. I was going to say, if you do that in 2013, not only will you be expelled from the school, um, you know, but you, you'll, you'll be mandated into treatment. Yeah, I, it's. But I also and okay, I I rewatched the movie in preparation for this podcast, 
there's a scene that I remember seeing that wasn't in the version that I rewatched, and I need to know if I'm imagining this or if one of you guys remembers it. There's the sequence, since we're talking about Henry Winkler, he gets killed. There's a scene at the big party, which is the scene of the finale, where Jamie Kennedy takes the phone call that says the principal was killed. He was gutted and hung from the field goals on the high school football field. And everyone in the house goes, that's awesome, let's go see him before they take, before they cut him down. <laughs> Which, let, hang on, first of all, that is completely believable for teenagers to do. Oh, yeah. I thought Along with the Second of all, but the sequence that I remember is they drive off and they almost run over uh, Dewey and Gale. They almost the, the WCW World Heavyweight Champion almost got hit by a car and lost his title on a 24/7 rule. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm done. I'm done with that reference. I'm, I'm done. I'm not. But in but in the version I saw in the version I saw when I rewatched it, they stay at the house. I have this memory of you seeing these two cars full of drunk teenagers pull up to the football field and actually see dead Henry Winkler hanging from the goalpost. And they and I think it's this great sequence because they pull up there and they're all ready to be, you know, dumb drunken teenagers going, Yeah, he's dead, look at the blood and they pull up and they just stop. And they all kind of slowly get out of their cars and look at each other like, Wait, really? Is this legitimate? Is this I mean I just and I think that particular effect would play even better today with all the talk of desensitization and whatnot. But am I misremembering that? Did that not happen and I made it up? Uh, yeah, help me out there. It's not if, in the version I watched on Netflix. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you, maybe you watched a different extended cut or something than the one I have, but I don't remember that at all. No. Okay. It, I might be misremembering. I freely admit it. Uh, I just had that memory, and I wanted to make sure. I wanted to see how that played out. Sean, we've but, uh, we've yeah. hit upon a couple of different characters here. I know that you had some stuff you wanted to say about dear old Skeet, but uh, and, and I want to give you that opportunity. But we're going to close out our discussion of the first Scream movie by talking about um, the blonde, the infamous blonde, who is in by far the goriest scene of the movie. And it's, it's really weird because it's almost a story of two different movies. There's that opening sequence um, with Drew Barrymore, who was marketed as the star of the movie, was on the poster, played, you know, the the, the blonde horror trope to a T, everything, you know, that we, that we talked about before. And she's chased through the house. Um, she's uh, mocked by this, you know, sinister villain and all of that. And, uh, you know, she does all the things you don't, you're not supposed to do in a horror movie. And then she's gutted and hung from a tree. And I just, you know... You're watching this for the first time. Take you right back to how we started the discussion. You're watching this for the first time play out. Just what was your reaction from start to finish of Drew Barrymore's performance, how that scene was written, what it told you about this movie going forward, just your whole, you know, your your whole overall reaction to that opening sequence. Are you asking me or Robert? You are Sean. I am Sean, aren't I? You are. That we've got that straightened out. Oh, thank you. That makes me happy to know that. Anyway, <laughs> um, no, you know, being right up front here, 
I have never been overly impressed with Drew Barrymore as an actress. At, at all. I mean, I... I know that I, I've known women that absolutely would worship the woman's used tampons. Um, and, and I've just never seen it. I've just never seen the appeal. I've just never seen why some people think she's that great an actress. She's been mildly amusing a few times. I thought she was okay in Donnie Darko. Uh, but then again, there were a lot of people who were surprisingly good at that. But for that for that role, for, for this particular scene, for the couple of minutes she's in this movie, she's actually, for a change, legitimately impressing me. Because um, it is written so very well. It's it's paced well. It's shot well. Just It is arguably one of the greatest horror slasher movie openings of all time. Both in terms of how it's it's so self-referential, right from the beginning, and the genre reconstruction starts right there, right down to the fact that you've even got uh, Craven and Williamson writing in the joke about Nightmare on Elm Street. The first one was good; the rest of them sucked. Well, yeah, of course, because Wes only directed up to that point one of them. Because uh, uh, at that point, New Nightmare had not come out yet. Um, you've got the references to the fact that people always think that uh, Jason is the killer in Friday the 13th when, like, to riff off you a little bit, Robert, spoilers, it's Jason's mother. <laughs> uh, and it builds, it builds the tension up in such a convincing and engrossing fashion. Um that it is the best use of absolute minimal screen time I've ever seen. And it also works to the advantage of, again, to bring it back around to where we started this conversation, to Wes Craven making it very clear, look, the rules don't all apply in this one. For the last ten minutes, you probably just thought that this woman was going to be the heroine of the movie. You probably thought that we had just introduced our survivor girl. Nope. Biggest name in the movie killed her off in just about the bloodiest fashion of anybody in the movie. <laughs> before before we even get the title card. It's... Man, you know, you almost don't want to call that the best part of the movie because I feel like that would be saying the rest of the movie is all downhill from there. It's as but I really, said, it's a story. It's a story of two different movies, almost. Right. You have this. One, but, you have this one opening sequence, and then the rest of the movie. But, uh, but really, I mean, then when you go back, but then when you go back and think about it, you just kind of go, "Wow, actually, I mean, the rest of the movie is great." But yeah, that really was arguably the most memorable part of the whole damn thing. I mean, even I mean, you even had that. That was even the highlight of the trailers at the time. Um, was playing up Drew, really, and not necessarily Nev. So, I mean, in my opinion, might very well be the crowning moment of Drew Barrymore's career. No, surely that was Sugar from uh, Batman Forever. Oh, right. My mistake. <laughs> All right. 
<laughs> so this movie, you, you don't want you don't want to throw out there uh, the chick from Fifty First Dates with Adam Sandler. I've never watched that movie on principle. <laughs> don't. <laughs> All right. Um, so that was Scream, and it made you know it was a terribly fi- uh, successful movie, financially successful, redefined the genre. The studio demanded a year later they make another one, and so they did. And so the question then becomes, okay. So the gimmick with the first one was it's a real person running around in a costume trying to stab people. And it uh, and let's not and let's not forget one of the things that drives me crazy with a lot of movies is cockamamie plot lines or motivations for people to do things. And in the first one they established a very very simple one. It was a revenge tale. You know, Billy wants to kill uh Sydney because her mother was a whore and broke up his family. Perfect. I, I don't need hey, to know Ma- anything Don't else. forget Matthew Lillard's uh, explanation. It was peer pressure. <laughs> right. Well, no, he he was he was the I, follower. I do love that sequence, though, when he's on the phone. Like, so what's your excuse? Peer pressure. There's way too much of it going around. He's right. like bleeding out. Well, uh, no, that whole that whole bit where it, it's so over the top, but it's hilarious. He was like, I'm dying here. You <laughs> <laughs> with a phone, you dick. <laughs> right. You got me too deep, man. Um, My just the parents whole thing are gonna unraveling. be so mad. Yeah, that that's the that's the line that has that that. God damn it! That's the line that does me <laughs> in every time. Um, you know what? This is probably somebody trying to tell me, ask me if I like scary movies. Um, in any case. <laughs> so, on. Scream two. Yeah. So, well, the point that I was trying to get at was. Um. Yeah, Bill, so Billy wants to kill Sydney because her mother uh, wrecked his family. And I'm probably going to need to get up for a second. So, Sean, for the first time in this podcast, I'm going to let you explain the plot to the two two and kind of connect the dots for me. <laughs> that is one I, persistent bill collector. <laughs> I will. I will do my very best. So, into, generally speaking, we're picking up after the events of one, obviously, and we now find Sydney Prescott at college, getting on with her life. She's active in the drama department. She's got a new boyfriend, played by Jerry O'Connell, uh, but she is still haunted both by pranksters, constantly playing constantly playing off her fame as a would-be slasher victim and also by being clearly still more than a little bit scarred and haunted by what she's endured. Yeah, she's, uh, it's, she's uh, had an interesting life up to this point, hasn't she? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. But it's also at this point that uh, a new rash of murders has begun in very in very similar if not exact style to the ones that plagued Sydney and her friends previously. So is that a it's is that a pretty good something, Mark? Well I was gonna say it's an interesting um verse Forgetting that the movie was coming out. That well, was kind of the catalyst for the whole thing in some ways was uh Gail Weathers wrote the book Stab. Well she wrote the book The Woodboro Murders, which was made into the movie Stab where Tori Spelling is playing the Nev Campbell character, where Luke Wilson, of all people, is playing Billy Loomis, and God, I hate Luke Wilson. 
it's uh it, it was a funny bit there with the, with the all the um 90210 the whoever the producer is spelling's father Aaron spelling um little little play on media there but what um what I was hoping we would get to was how they kept with the same major theme you know instead of getting uh bogged down in in cockamamie plots and supernatural things we went right back to what made the first movie in the plot work which was revenge in the first movie, Nev, out of self-defense, has to uh, ends up killing Billy. And in the second movie, that turns around and bites her in the ass. Perfect. It's you know, I I, I just got done seeing uh, the new Star Trek, and uh, two weeks ago was Iron Man, and you know, I find myself with a lot of movies these days going, please stop overwriting the plot. And so it's nice to see a movie has has a very simple plot. You killed my son. Prepare to die. Perfect. Done. Um, and I and I don't wanna and I don't wanna skip too far ahead, but it's actually the biggest problem that I have with not Laurie Metcalf, she was wonderful, but the but the first accomplice in this almost wrecks the movie and then it's saved by her explanation. Timothy Oliphant, gotta love him. <laughs> uh so yeah, I love I love Timothy Oliphant, but Oh come on, I you didn't talk- buy him as the hitman? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm being, I'm being genuine. No, I really like Timothy Oliphant and a lot of things that, things that he's in. And actually, I think he, I think he actually was not the problem with Hitman. The problem with Hitman. No, he wasn't. <laughs> the problem with Hitman was that it was a Hitman movie. Uh, let's talk well, about the opening. Kind of, kind of. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about the opening scene here. Um, yeah. This one can. can Omar can Epps I... dies. I'm happy. <laughs> Quiet. Okay. Well, let me get this out of the way a little bit early here. I don't very much care for Scream 2. Okay. Why, why? I understand why people do. I don't think you're an idiot if you enjoy it. I don't care for it as much. To me, this is the point where it's almost like they're spoofing themselves, and then it just goes downhill further in 3 and 4. Well, I, I, okay. Let me stop you there. Hang, there on. Are, I, hang, okay. hang on. Hang on, Robert. Let me stop you there because... What you're, what I think you're about to say, in, in terms of it spoofing itself, is exactly why that opening sequence doesn't work for me. The rest of the movie is fine, but it's almost the polar opposite of uh, of the Drew Barrymore scene in the first movie. Is you have these two black characters talking about how, uh, the you know, what's Jada Pinkett's line? Something along the lines of African Americans are often left out of horror movies, and so this is not a a she doesn't want to be frightened. B this is not a genre that she supports. It's a proud black woman, and I'm like, that's great. What the fuck does that have to do with this movie? And by the end of it, you're like that. That had no payoff. You know, at least it the would have had more payoff if they'd killed the cameraman. Hey, what? <laughs> no, Peter Smith was foreman before ORF was foreman. Okay, that's funny. Um, and the point what, that I was getting what, what? to. This to be a race baiting device. So maybe she doesn't feel like she needs to pay her taxes because her parents are proud black slaves. Listen, um, it, my 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 point with bringing that up is while the very well the first scene in, the, in in Scream has a payoff, obviously it sets the tone for the entire movie. This one, it's still the tale of two different movies, but the first one makes no sense. You know, in that it's why it's connected to, you know, you have no reason for whoever it was, whether it was Laurie Metcalf or, or, or the accomplice for killing these two people, other than plot said so other than, you know, we, you know, we need an open, you know, it was kind of like, 
uh, op- you know, going to watch a band open with a cover. Like, all right, you know, sure, why not? It just, it was jarring for me. And then having watching the movie play out and going back to that, I, it had no connection to the plot. And so I really felt like it was, that, that was one of those scenes that was just an exercise in masturbation. Back to you, Robert. I don't completely disagree. I think the reason they wound up doing that was that's the big opening night of Stab, and given that Timothy Oliphant's character is dead set on becoming famous, which 90% of all serial killers are, then you know here's a good way to do it. It's at the big premiere. This is the costume I'm going to be wearing. I can get away with it. I mean, it's a bit gratuitous, but it's not. But it's not horrible as far as plot goes. And again, Omar Epps dies. I'm happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that for me is one of the saving graces of this movie. I get to see Omar Epps and Jerry O'Connell die. <laughs> I mean, how can you go wrong? Kill Jerry sooner. <laughs> <laughs> have piranhas kill him? Uh, so, so we have a new group. So we have a new group of friends surrounding Nev Campbell. We have um, the guy from, um, we have the fat kid from Stand By Me. Um, that's the only I remember him being though. No, he was oh, he was in Sliders. That was the other show that he was famous for. So you have Jerry O'Connell. Um, you have the guy who ends up becoming the accomplice, and then you have her uh, African American friend, and, and and then you have the whole bit with the uh, with the sorority girls, which then never has a payoff to it. So it's. You know, um, I, I'm not opposed to seeing Sarah Michelle Gellar die. That's okay. <laughs> Could they have not killed Portia de Rossi too? I mean, really. That's where I was going with this. They set up these two really annoying sorority girls and then don't kill them. They killed Sarah yeah, Michelle Gellar for no apparent reason, who didn't come across as an annoying bitch. Well, they wanted, there is the one sequence in the, I think it's the police station, where they kind of explain that they're killing people who have the same whose names are the same as his first yeah. or last name are connected to the people that were killed in the first one. That's where she fits in. But, that, you know... Does that not sound contrived to you? Oh, well, it does. A little bit, yeah. It's also something a slightly obsessive-compulsive serial killer would do if he's trying to send a message. Sean, let's... I let's, mean, I don't it, wanna... it's one of those things that it's... It's contrived in that here's a legitimate thing that serial killers do, but we're only going to use this part of it instead of the rest of the pathology because we think it makes for a better story and lets us get these kills in. Let me say this, then I want to go over to Sean. I, I don't dislike Scream 2. I actually like it a lot. I, I thought as a sequel and as an interesting story, it worked for me. Um, obviously, it's got some problems. This this cast of characters that surrounds Nev Campbell that that, that are brought in um, as as new characters don't really work for me, and, and I don't want to go through uh, in the individual performances because it was all kind of one note, and it was all I, it all kind of fell flat for me. There's like this, as opposed to the first movie where you actually care about these people and, and you don't want to see them die. This one just felt like logs to a fire. Sean, what, what's your reaction to that? Uh. You don't really care about any of, about any of the new characters were introduced, um, except for the fact that really the nicest thing you could say is you're maybe a little bit a little bit neutral, just kind of meh on Sarah Michelle Gellar being killed off. 
but really, otherwise, about the only ones you really care about are Brandy, Dewey, Gale, and Sydney. And as <laughs> the returning before, characters. Yeah, the returning characters. Yeah. Did I did I say something incorrect there? No, I'm just. I don't know. I suppose it strikes me as part of the weakness of the writing of this one. And in fairness, Scream 2 was rushed. I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone admits that. Probably. But, you know, that the only legitimate, the only characters that you actually are invested in are the holdovers from the first one. They don't bother to develop any new ones that make any kind of legit, that make any kind of good impression. Well, 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 yeah, precisely. I mean, everybody else is pretty much canon fodder. Um, so there really is no development in that in that sense, in that your level of engagement with the characters is just pretty much going to be the same static level as it was right at the end of Scream. Um, and even then, the most those characters really develop is we just see that there's some there's been some development and then some cracks in the relationship between Gale and Dewey. I was going to say, this is actually Gail's movie. You know, Ned Campbell may have been marketed as a star of this thing, and obviously, you know, in, this, in the strictest sense of the word, she is. But it really felt like this was the Gail movie. This one, there was more of a focus on her. She has a direct villain in Laurie Metcalf. That's right from the start. Even before you realize that Laurie Metcalf is the murderer, one of them, she's, uh, she establishes um, a rival. And and that's the thing, you know, well, Nev Campbell is going, going back to the same thing again where she's running from a monster. Uh, Gail, has to de- Gail has to deal with a more visible threat in this reporter who keeps uh, trying to eclipse her and stick her nose in and be bothersome. Uh, not to mention an enormous amount of the movie is spent with uh, dealing with her relationship with former WCW champ David Arquette. So, um, yeah, I, and I actually found that to be one of the more appealing parts of the movie. <laughs> what was that now? It said a pox on you, dipshit. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, um, now do you see what I'm saying? Though no, you know, you, I think what saves this movie from uh, complete ruin, you know, and, and while defended against sort of Roberts uh, jibes at it, is enough of the movie is spent dealing with Gale and her relationship with Dewey that that's new and interesting and worth me sitting through the movie for. Because the rest of the stuff with Nev Campbell is more of the same. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, as we go along up to a certain point in three, you know, I don't want to say it's almost like you could take Sydney out of the movie entirely and it almost wouldn't make a difference. But it's not like you'd really miss anything engaging with her at all in part two. Unless you for some reason want to want to count Jerry O'Connell's spontaneous David Cassidy karaoke. Um, <laughs> I could have thought that. And you know, and, and I this is one time where I gotta give Arquette just a little bit of credit. I got to give him the credit of the fact that he had not gone full-blown jabbering idiot with his acting by this point. So him actually being a little bit downplayed and a little bit um insecure and kind of bitter as Dewey 
actually, I would dare say, might have been one of the better, if not just flat out the best performances of his entire career. His best um, performance since Airheads. You know, that's true. <laughs> I did. I did forget that he was an Airheads. <laughs> um, but, but no. I mean, it was it was one of those times where he actually displayed a little effort rather than just being an, an irritating doofus on par with, well, for want of a better comparison, Jamie Kennedy. Um, I couldn't wait for Jamie Kennedy to die in this. I, I had just about, some, going back to something Robert said earlier in the podcast, by the time Laurie Metcalf stabs him to pieces, I've just about had enough of him. I think in the first movie, there's a strong enough rest of the cast, or you know, the acting, the you know, everything is around him is strong enough that his that when he's on screen, he's kind of like the goofy friend who you understand why you keep you know objectively speaking, you know, yeah, maybe he's annoying and you want to slap him a couple of times, but in the group dynamic, he works. You know, it, it makes sense for him to be there. In this, the only thing you have is he is he's the only one who's there for Sydney who was there in the first one who's you know, still got that connection with her. And you know, the only time he's not objectively aggravating the piss out of me is the is when he and Sydney like, first see each other again. I mean, obviously they go to the same school, but after things start happening, and there's a bit of humanity to Jamie Kennedy, and then it goes out the window and she becomes more and more obnoxious. Ironically enough, until he's verbally jabbing with... Uh, the serial killer over the cell phone because when he stops being afraid and starts actually going back at the guy about you know sequels being worse than the original it's actually moderately interesting up until he gets pulled in and stabbed to death and Ghostface does a little mug for the camera through the window I enjoyed enjoyed his death scene not just because I was getting tired of him but I'll tell you what I didn't particularly enjoy and it was funny, I actually empathized with Dewey in that scene, is, uh, you know, Dewey's talking to him, he's like, okay, tell me about your knowledge of horror sequels, because maybe somewhere in your knowledge of these tropes and memes, um, I'll get a clue as to how I can solve this thing. And it's one of these, you know, and it, and it shows a sort of uh, vulnerability to him, where he really is fucking clueless, he has no idea what to do. Which, just as a side note, is probably one of the biggest elements that works with any one of these screen movies, is that what a horrible thing to imagine that there's a crazy murder on loose and it could be anybody. We aren't talking a monster or a zombie or, you know, so, you know something Jason like that. Or Freddy. Yeah, you know. You, you know, We all know who Jason is. He's the guy with the hockey mask and the big machete. Right. So when, when you think about it, it could be your neighbor. It could, you know, it could be a family member. Not to freak anybody out listening to this, but I think that's the thing that works for me is it it's the any man. You know, when, when when the monster is the any man, that is truly horrifying. That's the worst thing I can possibly think of. You know, it could be anybody, and, and it could be anybody in the world, and it's probably somebody you know. Yikes. Um, so, getting back to that, so I, and so getting to why that relates to to Dewey is when when those are your suspects, when 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 the suspects to a, a series of murders is anyone, anyone. Wow, the, 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 you have nothing to work with. So he's sitting there and he's grasping at straws and he's 
sitting uh, Kennedy down in earnest saying, tell me what you know so that I can maybe pull something out. And he starts going through the same routine, essentially, that he went through in the first movie. And here is where what why that scene doesn't work and the scene in the video store does. In the scene in the video store, as I said earlier, uh, momentarily Lillard's mask comes down and he's like, oh, shit, this twerp's going to spill the beans. He's going to figure it all out. There's no stakes in the second scene. There's no stakes, you know, there's nothing at play. It's Dewey asking him in earnest, help me solve these murders, and he tells him nothing. You know, it's it's self-referential, and it plays into the theme of the movie, but ultimately, what did Dewey get out of that scene? And that's why why I empathize. And and he even says, he's like, you're not helping me with anything. You're not telling me anything that's useful. And I'm sitting there like... You know, if he pulled out a gun and shot him, I would have understood. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where, like, you're useless. Fuck off. I'm going to um, call you as a character witness when I kill Jamie Kennedy. <laughs> I'm just but, saying. Now, do you see what I'm saying? That it, it's a weak scene, and, and and the way that it plays out is is very frustrating for me. Do you understand what I'm talking about, Robert? Yeah, I do. I mean, especially since nothing of any use comes out of it. Right. You know, the scene in the movie store, he talks about a couple of horror tropes. You know, how dare the you know, he looks over at you know, Billy Loomis, and he's in the horror section, and how dare a the the prime suspect in a series of murders stand there. It's just in poor taste and he references a couple of specific movies and the father's a red herring and the cops would save time if they'd watch if they'd watch prom night instead of Whatever else they do, I forget what he says there, but he goes off a little bit. And in this one, it, it seems like, you know, it's like, okay, we have a sequel. We have to have the same kind of scene where we talk about horror movie sequels, but we're not going to get into any of the issues and cliches that come up in horror movie sequels. And it's not like there aren't any. They just decided not to deal with any of them. And immediately go to the killer calling, which I liked that sequence after the killer calls, and they start tackling people with random cell fo- random people with cell phones. Sure, but it but you know the whole you know help me out here with you know what what do you get from a, I mean you know to kind of play on you know Matthew Lillard being in the first one, if they'd had Timothy Oliphant there and he and Jamie Kennedy are engaging in another of their long running debates about sequels and. Can a sequel be better, and whatnot? And if I mean, if just he if he'd just been there, and they said, well, what ha- you know, what happens in horror sequels? And they kind of play off each other, discussing some of the bad things. And you have you know, Timothy Oliphant there saying, well, you know, a sequel can be better. I mean, look at A, B, and C. And then Jamie Kennedy gives this kind of rebuttal. It just, I mean, it seems like if they'd had another five days to do research on horror movie sequels to write in some of the some of the cliches and some of the things that come up all the time, they could have had a much better scene there than the one they came out with. Um, no, absolutely. Sean, again, if you want to um, add anything to that, go ahead. But I want to talk about Oliphant as we uh, start to close, uh, we start to move towards the end of this podcast. And for those listening in the chat room in about five minutes or so, you're going to hear dead air as we go into recording uh, the live of Long Road to Ruin runs 90 minutes, and then we do usually do about a half an hour to 45 minutes over, depending on how much Sean and I uh, give about everything but the actual central topic. So, and then we do plugs. Um, 
it's it's always a lot of fun. The the, the recorded part of the podcast is is usually very fun uh, because we do kind of go all over the map and, and stray from um, the central part of this. But so I, I just want to warn people, like I said, in about five minutes, um, there will be there will be an abrupt end. But Blog Talk Radio will continue to record. So when we finally conclude the podcast uh, and it goes into the archive, you will hear everything in its entirety, including my uh, raucous outro by Clutch One Eyed Dollar. So uh, just give everyone fair warning. But uh, Sean, going back to you for a second, anything you want to add to to that? That's fine. But I want to get into Oliphant and that that closing sequence. Um, best best scene in the movie, tension wise, is after uh, I, I'm assuming it's Oliphant who takes them on a, a, a Mr. Toad's wild ride <laughs> through the city and uh, tries to you know tries to kill them um, Kurt Russell style in the one Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, by by ramming the car into things, and he's out cold, and she's like, "I want to know who it is. I want to know who's behind the mask." And it, it, not and not since the Drew Barrymore scene has there been so much tension in one of these movies. It's it's one of the most to me one of the more legitimately frightening parts of this movie. Um, works far better for me than than the whole bit with Jada Pinkett and Omar Epps. But what comes out of that scene is she you know she runs back into the the theater. And that's where everything kind of comes to a head. And I'll tell you, it's uh, it's a story of two endings for me. You have the shitty ending where I wanted to throw stuff at the television screen, and then you have the the ending that saves the entire movie and allows me to buy the shitty ending because it's it's such it's a it's such a misdirection. But um, the reveal that it's Oliphant was fine. You know, it had to be somebody. It might as well have been uh, the friend and and. and the explanation that essentially he was already a murderer um, and he was being hired to, to stalk and kill uh, Sydney by the person whose idea this all was. And it was Billy's mother. Dun, dun, dun. But that whole initial explanation for why he's doing it and everything else, this was worse than any of Billy's dialogue from the first movie, in my opinion. And even as sort of self-referential, self-referential satire of horror genres and violence in the media and uh, the media's role in copycat murderers and that sort of thing. This was so ham-fisted and so over the top that I was like, I, I don't, I don't buy this. I don't like this. And you're a terrible actor. Sean, your thoughts on Mr. Oliphant and that last, uh, that last exchange with him and Nev. Oh God. Like I said, I, I, I love Timothy as as an actor. Um, quite frankly, I think he's a highlight of, of most of the stuff that he's in, to be perfectly honest. But, my God, <laughs> my dear, sweet monkey Jesus, that was one of the most contrived, ridiculous, suspension of disbelief-shattering things I have ever heard. You know, Billy and Stu were nuts, but in a way, their plan kind of made sense, both in terms of motivation and execution. You know, you got the fact that Billy obviously had a very personal axe to grind. To a slightly lesser extent, so did Stu, and that he kind of always pined after Sydney. And that gave way to this whole, you know, remarkably well-thought-out killing spree. 
um, that kind of combine their two motives and their desire to ultimately end up being immortalized as serial killers. Um, well, there was also the uh, Drew Barrymore's character at Dump, uh, Matthew Lillard's, that they only touch on briefly because him being the killer wants to brush it off, but they do mention that at one point on the screen one that he was dumped. That, that's very true. That, that's right. I did forget about that. I did forget that Casey had dumped, that Casey had dumped Stu. Um, so, good point. That's a good catch there, Robert. Um, but in the second movie, you know, you kind of understand Laurie's motivation just fine. Um, that that part that's all well and good. I I can't hate I can't hate on that. Sydney murders son, so she murders son, so she snapped and went after Sydney. Um. Timothy's plan, though, just th- this is as far as you got. Th- this is as far as your planning your planning went. Kill people, get famous. That's it, and just base the whole thing, the whole thing on horror movies. There was really nothing personal involved there, no other stakes except for that. And let me let me stop you for one second. Had he just said? You know, if she looked at him and she was like, "But, but why? Whatever your name is, I don't remember. Um, why Maybe. Wolverine? I was gonna go with Wolverine hair. Why Wolverine hair? Why? Why? Why would you? Why are you trying to kill me?" And he just said, "For the money, bitch. I'm a hire. You know, <laughs> I already kill people for a living. She hired me. No, no, you know, nothing personal. Click. I'd have been fine with that. You know." You know, it, it, and then they can go into the sort of cat and mouse thing that ends with him being knocked out, and then Laurie comes in, and I was the higher power all along. Steve. It, was, it me, was me, Austin. Austin. It was me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm I just, would have been fine with that. You, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm left thinking. You know, Timothy, if your character had just actually just flat out said, "Man, crazy has no plan," it would have been better. <laughs> actually came up with <laughs> that would have been awesome and we we talked about that in, a, in another podcast where uh, we were talking about that with the batman one where we just man crazy has no plan someone needs to just say that as as the their motivation and I'll, I'll be sold no questions asked uh you know for for my new viewers you sometimes need to you sometimes need to go back and I almost need to make a crib sheet of different radio dead air and that guy with the glasses references that I make over the course of our show. Um but it just it completely pulls you right out of it. It completely pulls you out of any sense of anything you have just seen making sense whatsoever. And it really is one of the lowest points of a movie that, despite it being very flawed, manages to also still be very fun to watch. Um, It it really is a fun sequel. It's not nearly as well-executed or as tight as Scream, but it still manages to be overall enjoyable, Um, even even for all of its crappiness at some point. But then... But then you just get to that to that monologuing resolution, and you realize that this was what was going on the entire time, and all of a sudden you're like Stan in the Super Best Friends episode of South Park, and you're just sitting there forced to go, 
That trick sucks, Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's it's true. I mean, especially for a movie that where you have a slightly higher expectation. And I mean, you know, like you guys said, if he had come out and said, "So, you know, why are you doing this?" He said, "Because I'm crazy." Yeah. You know, look, look at my, I got the crazy eyes going on, bitch. I'm right. Nuts. Yeah. Because Do yeah, I because need a I, reason? I would have gone either no, way. No, I want to get famous. I want to blame the media. I want a trial. And if you combine that with the gloriously over-the-top acting, as far as that sequence goes, I mean, ugh, it, it's a mess. And you ever see the uh, the, the, the Wayans Brother movie, uh, Don't Be a Menace While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood, and every time that uh, they had like a moral point to make, uh, Keenan Ivory Wayans would walk in frame as a as a um, postal worker, and he would yell message. Uh, I believe I saw part of that movie on television once, but I hate the Wayans Brothers with a burning passion, so no, I well, haven't seen the whole thing. All, all you need to know is what I just said, and that's my problem in a nutshell with that entire sequence, because aside from the, aside from the motivation, I mean, we can sit here and quibble over what would have been better had he just said, man crazy has no plan, or I'm a hired gun asshole, I shoot, I shoot people for money. Next, next question. That's not even the worst part of it. The, like you're saying, the worst part of it is he then goes into this editorial about, the me, about violence in the media, and this is, I guess, supposed to deal somewhat with how the OJ trial ended, where, um, or, or really the whole OJ trial spectacle in and of itself. And I don't want to get into a whole political thing, but, you know, this is 1997. I don't remember about, this is about when OJ uh, is found not guilty. And I remember the whole OJ trial itself was really one of the first times a major murder trial had been on television and people were tuning in every day. You know, th- this, this was, uh, this was must-see TV. So, Yes, they're talking about that. Yes, they're editorializing that. Yes, I don't want to see it in a horror movie. Yes, it was stupid and shoehorned in and just felt very out of place. Because while they somewhat deal with that sort of thing in different parts about the movie, it's like a little sprinkle of this and a dabble of that through the through the 90 minutes, and then at the end they hit you with a fucking hammer. And it's like, oh, come on. And again, all you needed at that point while he's giving his monologue is for Keenan Ivory Wayans to walk in frame and yell message. And now I wish somebody had thought to include that. <laughs> well, included in Nude Night. No, at least when they made that same kind of point in the first one, it was much better executed because they're sitting there stabbing each other and Sydney accuses them both of being sick people who've just seen too many movies and Billy Loomis in a bit of horrible dialogue, but he yells at her, "No, don't blame the movies. Movies don't make killers. Movies make killers more creative." <laughs> Message. But I mean, at least that one made sense because they had gone through a great deal of effort to make it clear that you know they had used movies a bit as inspiration. That you know, the whole thing was a re- was a movie reference in a lot of ways, and it made sense for him to say something like that at that point. Right. And in this one, it doesn't. It really doesn't. Well, it's like they set him up as a movie person, and then they never went back to it. I mean, maybe I maybe I'm missing something. You know, I watched it. Uh, I watched it last Friday, so maybe I 
maybe I missed it where they where they ever referenced him again, but I don't even remember him being in any part of the movie after the first couple of initial scenes or where, where uh, or he's the, there he, he's there off and on. I yeah. mean the only the, never, the only other movie references kind of that you get out of him that would be kind of in sync with what you had Billy doing in the first one where he made movie references constantly is he mentions like he has the ongoing debate with Jamie Kennedy about sequels being better than the originals, and it makes sense because he's a killer trying to make his sequel better. But he and Jamie Kennedy go back and forth a couple of times, and then when Jerry O'Connell does his David Cassidy on the, he makes he as soon as Jerry starts going into that, you kind of cut over to him, and he goes, "Oh, great, you know, Top Gun, nineteen eighty one, or whatever year it came out in." Right. Because the he's point of, of course is, aping the Tom Cruise. The point of it is, is that movies need payoffs. You know, you set. You know, movies should should be very much like a volleyball game. You know, bump, set, spike. It's not that hard. And when you do, and when you put a character in a movie who's there for a specific purpose, and he and he's spiking the ball that was never set in the first place, you're like, well, where did the ball come from? How did we get here? And that's what drives me nuts about that. But it, it, it's all saved by Laurie Metcalf, who. Um, is probably up there in the top 20 scenery-chewing villains I've ever seen in my life. She's awesome. Laurie Metcalf is probably one of the most underrated actresses uh, I- I've ever seen. She was awesome on Roseanne as the, as the nutty sister, the flaky sister. Um, she's great as Sheldon's mom on The Big Bang Theory. And any movie that I've seen her in, she's always, she always just plays these quirky characters. Uh, I, I, I don't think she... You know, because she's not drop dead gorgeous or has huge boobs, she tends to be over. I think overlooked uh, in in movies, um, in in um, in Hollywood in general. But she really is a stellar actress, and she saves this movie for me. And she was also superb in God, the Devil, and Bob. Never saw it. Yeah, fortunately, a lot of people did, and that's a, that's really too bad because it was an outstanding NBC primetime animated show. Uh, Sean, I think that's mm. all I've, I've got uh, to say about this is Laurie Metcalf's simple, uh, I'm killing you because you killed my son, never mind the fact that he was a psychopath and a killer in his own right, never let facts get in the way of mother's love. Fine, I'm happy with this. She dies, justice is served, Nev, Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox live on to fight another day. I have nothing more to say about this. Any, any uh, closing thoughts? To be perfectly honest... If you had just stuck with Laurie Metcalf as the killer and just left Timothy out entirely, you would have been fine. You think they could have? I mean, the whole the whole thing of is is that what gives the ghost face this sort of supernatural feel is that he's able to be fleet of foot, which is accomplished by the fact that there's two people. You know, okay, fine. Then maybe they should have written it in some other way or just in any kind of fashion so that somebody else had another personal tie to the characters and it wasn't just somebody who was on some kind of bizarre crusade to crucify crucify violence in the media. Again, it could have worked if they had just said, I'm a hired gun, which he says... But then he goes into this OJ stuff. Yeah, point taken, I I guess. I mean, 
it's just too bad because the whole thing with Laurie works so effectively and it plays so well in what ultimately becomes the extension of the mythos and the exposition in the third movie. Um, but man, I just I, I I I'm sitting here and yeah, I think I think you really hit it. I was trying to come up with some other way other than what you mentioned, the whole hired gun theory, uh, to actually make the Timothy Oliphant character work, and I can't come up with anything else. So actually, yeah, what you just suggested really would have been probably the best way to go go about it. It's uh, like I said, I just I know I keep coming back to this, but I, I've got nothing else to add at this point, and that is that it's it's one of the most enjoyable flawed movies I've ever seen. Yeah. And and I have got some, and I could put some doozies on this on this list, um, but I'm a big stickler when it comes to horror movies and slasher movies. When it comes to plot points that just really make absolutely no sense whatsoever. whatsoever. Um, I mean, you don't have to you don't have to be perfect. A few certain unanswered questions are fine. Sometimes it's even preferable, but. Ultimately, things have to make some semblance of sense, and the and all of its character just it just it kills so much of so much of that that it kind of deflates how much you've actually watched the execution of the scenes as they played out over the course of the last about ninety minutes or so. So, I mean, you're left with you're left with something that's good execution right up until the last few minutes. So, All right. Before we end, um, I, I, I feel like we would have done an, uh, the movie a disservice without mentioning um, Lee Shriver's character, who reprises his role as Cotton Weary, who is the falsely accused murderer from the first movie. Um, I thought he, you know, he's more of a plot device than he is a character, and I thought that he served his purpose well in preventing, you know, presenting enough misdirection um, you know, he makes himself look like the killer in this a few times. And I think, because I didn't remember how the movie plays out, I knew one of them was Billy's mother. I couldn't remember who the other one was. And for the life of me, I thought it was Lee Schreiber, but not in this one, at least. Uh, Robert, your closing thoughts, and real quickly, just in your, you know, 50 words or less, address your thoughts on uh, Cotton Weary. I like his character, actually. He's... Uh, he's such an. I, I wish they would have played him a little bit more as the attention whore that he's meant to be, because here's a guy. And you know, all fairness to Cotton, one of the worst things I can imagine is being falsely convicted of a crime, especially getting sentenced to death. I mean, you know, Mark, you work within that system a little bit. I can't imagine, you know, how. I mean, you want simple motivation. Guy gets falsely convicted in the American judicial system. I believe. I mean, you know, you don't need much more motivation. It's a very easy place to come from and to be, and to let people, you know, at least kind of grasp that direction. And to then turn him into a guy who is basically whoring himself out to the media, yeah, that that makes a degree of sense. You know, here's a guy who's been in prison for he was in prison for over a year, probably more than that when you consider all the legalities that you'd have to go through to get him released, and. You know, he wants his 15 minutes of fame. He says that himself. 
you know, that's actually a half-decent twist on the falsely convicted character. Who, I mean, a lot of times they come out and they just want to get on with their life. It's nice to be exonerated. Here's a guy who, no, I want you to pay me for my story. You know, I'm okay with that, and I was okay with him as a red herring. That worked pretty well. It just, you know, it, it's just, it's sad that he, that they didn't give him, actually, I think it's sad they didn't give him more screen time, to be perfectly honest, because the sequence with him and Sydney in the police station, or I think it's the police station. It's the library. Or The library, thank you, where he's trying to convince her to do a 60-minute Diane Sawyer interview with him. There's actually some decent, you know, on-screen chemistry there. There's a decent dynamic that they could have played off, and I wish they would have given him a bit more screen time because it played out so well, and it would have been better than, I mean, cut Jerry O'Connell's screen time by half, give it to Lee Schreiber, and we're all a bit happier, I think. I would have liked to have them to have played on how prison affected him. To, to your point about my, my professional life, uh, every day I hear stories of absolute abject inhumanity that goes on in the American prison system. And I swear to God, I'm not going off on a rant here. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, anything that some of these people have ever done that got themselves put in prison, what happens to them in prison is far, far worse. So he went to an American prison. He, I'm sure he, whatever state this takes place in, I'm sure he was in that state prison. He didn't commit a federal offense. Um, I would have liked to have them. And I mean, maybe that takes kind of the fun out of the movie. I mean, he's supposed to be fun, popcorn, eating uh, slasher films and so you know sort of a self-reflection of the horrors of prison probably would have been a little out of place but i would have liked to you could even do something with it i mean he could have been there in that scene in the library when he's trying to sell her and said you know do you have any idea what goes on in prison yeah you know you you know what you kind of owe me a little bit here let's do this stupid interview i mean all he could do something with it all he needed to say is you didn't just falsely accuse me and have me convicted, Sydney. You have no idea what you did to me. Okay, those those, those years behind uh, the behind bars, the things that I've experienced. You don't. You think you are experiencing a horror? I've experienced horror. And go from there. That would have been that would have been sufficient. But it's like. You know, Hollywood is not the American justice system and vice versa. So I, I don't know if anyone would have even thought uh, of the relevance of putting that in there. But again, you know, experiences are supposed to mean something. And you well, know, it would if have it, worked you, even, I mean, even outside of knowing how bad the prison system is, like people do, it would have worked from a self aggrandizing standpoint because here's a guy who wants attention. So, you know, no matter how many horrible things you had to endure, how many people you had to see killed, it couldn't possibly have been worse compared to what I've been through. So, And whether that's true or not, it would make sense from a character standpoint because he'd believe it and he'd want to get his story out there like that. Right. Maybe even, you know, just a simple, you know, you know, there's somebody out there trying to stab you, Sidney. Well, I've been stabbed, and it wasn't by a guy in a fucking mask, and then pull his shirt up and, like, show a scar in the belly. Perfect. You know, point taken. Because then Nev then has to deal with guilt. You know, there's there's more to that. I think that we we had said this earlier on in the podcast. There's not enough for Nev to deal with that wasn't already dealt with in the first movie, or the result of having to run from a, you know a psychopath uh, wielding a knife. So I think if they had played more on that, there would have been more for her to deal with emotionally, and I think then made for a better movie. But then I don't know. Um, a lot, you know, people, I. I, I I'm, this is going to sound terribly obnoxious, 
and I, and I guess I'll ask this question to Sean real quick. Do you think that, generally speaking, the kinds of people that would have gone to see this movie would have appreciated that sort of thing, or would it have been too much? Uh, what, I guess I kind of lost your question. Would, would have appreciated which sort of thing, exactly? What do you mean? The, the stuff that we're talking about with Cotton in regards to if he had referenced uh, his time in prison and sort of played on that. You know... I think really it's something they should have played with. Um, I, I, I do feel like he got short shrift because I feel like Liam Schreiber really did a pretty good job trying to kind of make the most of his minutes on screen. And he actually did a pretty good job for how little he was given making Cotton really pretty engaging. Um, right. And it's, and it's a shame that really he only gets total about one movie and change to kind of to kind of shine with that because obviously he's uh he's the first kill of screen three and in the first in the first movie he's shown only in brief clips and in you know mock up news footage being led into the courthouse right. um I think it's a shame because Liev is actually a, a pretty good a, a pretty good actor um who's who manages to really look pretty admirable in everything that he's in and manages to really bring uh, a certain realism and kind of gravity without ever being over the top to these kind of vaguely sinister characters like this. I would even go so far as to say he really wasn't bad as Sabretooth in X-Men Origins Wolverine. Yeah, I was actually going to go there. He wasn't the problem with that movie. No, no. I liked his Sabretooth. I actually liked his Sabretooth, and I think... The same thing about he's the big bad in the uh, Salt movie, Salt, with Angelina Jolie. He's the other sleeper agent again. I apologize if I'm spoiling a movie. And you're right. He's able to lend that, you know, that air about him to characters. And it it makes him, if he's playing, if he's legitimately playing a good guy, it makes him a bit more compelling because you want to believe him and you can see why people might... If he's a misunderstood hero, you can kind of get that air from him, and you can get in his corner. And if he's a bad guy, it all makes sense because of how he. I mean, it just it, it is. It's an absolute shame that he did not get more time in this movie or in three. I mean, he could have died in three and been just fine, but you know, he didn't have to be the first one. They could have given him some screen time, you know, maybe even as the scared guy running, who, who knows what's coming, and then dies before he can give exposition because that's another horror staple. Right. And I mean, you know, they they went to such lengths to flesh out the returning characters so much, um, even even Randy to a certain extent, that it just it feels like such a waste that they really didn't bother giving any meat to Cotton. Just where where yeah, where like you said, where he did really kind of, really kind of go on the attack on uh, on Sydney, really kind of burdening her with what he was put through being wrongfully accused and being in prison and probably supposing that his life was about to come to an end for a crime that he never that he never committed. Um, and to be honest, I think that if you had included that, I think that is something that audiences would have appreciated and it would have really elevated this sequel to another level because then you would have, in a movie where you really don't develop Sydney at all, all of a sudden, 
you're given a different perspective. You're not only giving Cotton more depth, but you're also kind of turning and looking at Sydney from a different angle as well. And throwing in something else that impacts her and kind of forces her to display a little more conflict. So, Yeah, it was a missed opportunity, to say the least. Yeah. All right. Um, I think that's it. I think that's all there is to say about Scream 1 and Scream 2. I don't remember Scream 3, and I don't think I ever saw Scream 4, so it'll be... um, you know, I, I, it'll be an interesting experience. Uh, I'm thinking a lot about paranormal activity, actually, and how, um, and, you know, I, and how I, I'd never seen any of those movies before, and I kind of had, you know, experiencing them for the first time to talk about them on the podcast. And I remember saying during the Paranormal Activities podcast that, you know, the first one uh, was great, and the second one was a good follow-up, and I think and I said off the cliff. Well, I think I said at the time, I said, you really have to work to make the sequels uh, effective and not just more of the same. You know, now, you know, instead of uh, a nice, you know, a a nice short, short, powerful song with, you know, hooks and choruses and whatnot, it ends up becoming Inagata DeVito or, you know, something that just goes on forever. Um, And and it's just the same stuff over and over and over again. Um, And I think without remembering too much of what happens in three uh, and uh, four, I think that's going to be the problem with the next two movies is that they don't put nearly the kind of thought that that we are into these movies. And it ends up becoming more of the same and therefore infinitely uh, weaker than the first two movies. But we shall talk about that when the time comes in two weeks. So that concludes our discussion of uh, Scream 1 and Scream 2 tonight. We'll be back in two weeks to discuss both of those. Uh, Robert, why don't you talk a little bit about your new podcast, when the next one's going to be, who you're doing it with, and uh, anything else you want to plug? Yeah, I started a new podcast. I hope you all take the time to listen to it. It's on Mark Radulich's account, so if you're screwing around in the archives section it's everyone loves a bad guy or everyone loves a villain uh the title kind of flops between those two things uh had mark on for the first one had a great series with pat mullen on james bond villains this friday at 8 p.m eastern standard time i will be joined by robert cooper and alex rella we'll be talking about evil corporations so some fun should be had there uh you're gonna deal with the corporation from aliens Yes, I will make a point uh, to bring up the Wayland yutani Corporation. We're going to do some OCP, a little umbrella, and I think Robert Cooper wanted to talk about Team Rocket a little bit. So I'm down for anything. They're bad guys, maybe cheesy, but they're still bad guys. So they deserve they deserve time on my show. Please, uh, make, if you're yeah, a fan, hey, of, what was that? Please make sure I was going to say. Please make sure you mention. Michael Douglas and his company from Wall Street. If only to say, if only to just to share, reshare the line that was fabulous in that movie. Um, why do you feel the need to wreck this company? Because it's wreckable. That's why. Love that line. Yes, Wall Street, great movie. And yeah, I'll, I'll, and the less said about the sequel, the better. <laughs> Short road to ruin. There's no uh, sequel. If you're, a fa- if you're a fan of MMA, I do write Locked in the Guillotine. It's an MMA news slash opinion column that comes out every Friday. In the MMA zone on 411 Mania, feel free to check that out if you're interested in that. 
I write what I think is the best news column on Fridays, so <laughs> you can't go wrong. All right, and Robert, of course, will be back in two weeks to, to talk about the two Scream movies, of course. Sean, tell us about your world. Folks, as I always say around this time, never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. And, uh, wow, this week I've kind of used up about everything on the palette. Um, I've kind of been all over 411 mania like a bad case of herpes. Um, If you want to go back and read some of the stuff that I did last week, I did guest spots on Buy or Sell, Factor Fiction. Um, Of course, as always, I had uh, Music's Three R's. I just did a review that is going live tonight of the new Daft Punk album, Random Access Memories. Spoilers, it is superb. Um, And uh, all I will say is I'm taking it a little bit easy this week on the writing, so this Sunday night slash Monday morning, get onto the 411 Music Zone and check out the latest edition of Music's Three R's, in which, from the looks of it... I am going to be subjecting to myself, for your amusement, to talking about Kesha drinking her own pee. <laughs> Is she studying jujitsu with Lyota Machida? <laughs> I'm not sure she could spell jujitsu. <laughs> she can't spell her own name, so clearly she couldn't spell that. Did she I've know been... it was pee when she drank it? Or did she think it was apple juice? Well, she the big deal about it, to kind of spoil it a little bit, is um, some some visionary-minded MTV gave her her own reality show. And apparently the big deal about it <laughs> is that she actually drinks her piss on the show, and that has raised the ire of the legendary Parents Television Council. Um... What? Are you sure this wasn't an episode of Family Guy? Uh, no, I, as I am reading, as I am reading this right now, I shit you not. According to the Hollywood Reporter, the Parents Television Council has sent a letter to its subscribers that was warning them that the incident was going to be going to air, called it disgusting, vile content, um, and it turns it into a to a segue to backing Arizona Senator John McCain's uh, push for cable providers to unbundle their channels and switch to a la carte ordering options, Uh, reading basically the justification being, and I quote, why should we have to pay for this kind of garbage just so we can get access to Discovery, Disney, or the Golf Channel? End quote. That's a legitimate question. I'm all for a la carte as far as that, as far as uh, network television, go, as far as television goes, because I've got some crap on my current bundle that I just I look at and I shake my head. You know what? As am I, because quite frankly, in a perfect world, I would say just give me the basic broadcast networks and PBS. Just just give me those for free. Go ahead with that. But then, you know, if I want to, let me go ahead and just kind of stick my package with some of the channels like Fuel, FX, AMC, USA, and maybe ESPN, because really those are the only basic cable networks that I watch 
on the regular anyway, you know, as opposed to having to jack my bill up to between 80 and 300 bucks for about 50, 60 some channels that channels that I don't need, especially not MTV. I mean, I, I don't try to make the stance on a moral ground. I just make the stance on the grounds of I don't really want anything to do with about 80% of the channels that I'm getting. But in the meantime... Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. We'll have to send her a thank you letter if this incident leads to that. Until then, she's still she can still go back to obscurity. You know what? I'm gonna. I would have to swallow my pride to do that because I have written about some weird shit in the time I've been writing three R's, and typically every week I only have usually one story in the ridiculous that I want to focus on. Up to this point, this right now is right up there with Nickelback paid me to stick my dick in a fan blade, and. What? And Justin Bieber stole my credit card to pay for penis enlargement surgery. No, nothing beats Lauren Hill not wanting to pay her taxes because she's the child of slaves and she had an economic system foisted upon her. You know, nothing you know, beats Ozzy snorting a line of ants. Let's just go old school and be done with it. <laughs> you, you know what? You know what, Mark? As as prone as I am to agree with you, having read all of the accusations in that attempted lawsuit against Justin Bieber, I can think of absolutely nothing that tops that because it's one of the rare times I have ever had to actually write to my readers, folks, no joke I could make could top what is really in this filing, um, including including the, uh, the complainant um, claiming to be Selena Gomez's father, uh, the aforementioned credit card fraud claim, claiming that Justin fucked Selena on his bearskin rug. And, oh, and my personal favorite, um, Justin and Usher stuck a lit firecracker up my ass. What the hell kind of a column are you writing? I write three R's, Mark. The SEC is I- proposing a policy shift that would allow more nudity and profanity. Huh. Interesting, Weird. given the... Is that on the home? Is that on the four one one homepage? No, this is on opposing views in my Facebook feed. Ah, I'll have to. I'll, have to, I'll here. I'll share it that way. You guys can see it too. But um, it's okay. interesting that, that 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 on the one hand you've got the Parents Television Council, one of the more useless organizations out there, um, warning people not to watch a show they weren't going to watch anyway with Kisha drinking piss. But at the same time, we have the FCC considering to allow more naked ass. And cursing on TV because that's what this world needs—more lowbrow television. Well, I, I, I don't know. I guess they're figuring if they want to make more lowbrow television, they just need to give Seth MacFarlane another TV show. Uh, you know, well, like, but, someone but, needs to light him on fire. Oh, but there's but, Family Guy funny. But, but there's long. It has bit. funny moments. It is not funny in and of itself. Yeah, but you know what? There's long been more than one group in the U.S. that has uh, that has always proclaimed that the problem with American entertainment is not so much the nudity and language, but that they would be willing to accept more nudity and foul language in exchange for less violence. Kind of the uh, kind of the European standard for entertainment. Um, much much more lax on censorship. 
on sensuality and vulgarity, but just tone down how many people you kill for broadcast. Did you know that French kids are left? As long as they don't have to move The Walking Dead to HBO or Showtime, I'm fine. Did you know that in France, more uh, less kids exponentially have uh, exponentially less kids have ADHD than uh, American kids, and the reason why is because the French don't pathologize normal behavior for a two-year-old. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Who'd have known the <laughs> French were ahead of us on something? All right. Anything else you want to plug, Sean? Uh. Yeah, um, once you take the crazy pills, go read the three R's. Yeah, done. <laughs> right. Uh, Sunday uh, brief night. side note, Sean, anytime you want on my villain podcast, I'd love to have you. Uh, I uh, plan on doing it. At some point, I'm going to do uh, an hour show dedicated to the big three, dedicated to Freddie, Jason, and Michael, and I'd love to have you on for that. Ooh, I would love to be there for that one. All right, I will. When I decide to do that one, I'll let you know. Probably well, coming up sooner than I'd like, because I can't get some people to. Some topics get bite, some people, some don't. So we might be doing that sooner than I plan on it, but it'll it'll be fun either way. As I was saying, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> so, Sunday nights at nine o'clock uh, is the four one one ground and pound MMA show with uh, Magnus Interruptus, Mr. Robert Winfrey. Um, <laughs> Uh, Jeffrey Harris and Pat Mullen. Uh, this past Monday, Jeffrey Harris and I got together and talked about the latest uh, Star Trek The Wrath of Two cover, Star Trek Into Darkness. So we had an hour-long podcast discussion of that movie uh, that's up on 401 right now in the movie zone. A week from today, Robert Cooper and I will be uh, doing our first part look at uh, thrash metal band Megadeth. We're breaking that up into two parts. We'll be looking at the first six Megadeth albums over the course of uh, 90 minutes. Uh, last Tuesday, uh, Robert Cooper and I finally got around to doing our review of Fin Troll. That's already up in the music zone, so check that out. Blood's Vet by uh, Fin Troll. If you're interested in, if you enjoyed my discussion tonight of former WCW champion David Arquette, you can go to thecasualheroes.com where I am welcomed every now and then to talk pro wrestling. And we did, we most recently did a preview of uh, WWE's pay-per-view that aired Sunday night, Extreme Rules, which I did not watch because I was doing a podcast. I would have benefited from a from a run-in from former WCW World Heavyweight Champion <laughs> David Arquette. I, I am the same player. I, uh, I believe he is the fourth member of the Shield. Now then... Um, now you've got me actually thinking about that. Don't do that. <laughs> I've been known to do that. Someday, uh, the right hook will be back. We were supposed to do a show actually today that would have had Thursday night, but due to the unfortunate incidents uh, concerning tornadoes in Oklahoma, the From the Right Radio will be airing a live telethon to support the survivors of that uh, horrendous uh, series of incidents. So um, if you have an opportunity to, Thursday night, uh, I think it's from like six to ten or something like that, from the right radio.com is doing a telethon to support uh, the victims of Oklahoma. Uh, I believe that's it. So, again, uh, two weeks from today, the second part to Scream, and then two weeks after that, Sean Comer and I will be tackling the, right before I go away on vacation, as a matter of fact, we will be tackling the Jurassic Park trilogy. 
So for my good friend Robert Winfrey, from my good friend and co-host Sean Comer, this has been The Long Road to Ruin. Be well, be safe, and behave. I've been working.